All right, well, this morning we continue winding down here our series on the Psalms, divine soul music. Um, this morning we come to Psalm 119. I am not going to cover the whole psalm. I can't <laughs> in one sermon. Um, but this is a bit of a continuation of an idea that uh, started a couple weeks ago, looking at Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. And so we saw the sovereignty of God um, last week in Psalm 139 seeing the sovereignty of God um, tied to his knowledge, his uh, presence, his power, those three omni-words, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence. And here his sovereignty as exercised through his word, through the laws that he has given to us. God, every, every king, every monarch, every ruler has laws. And our God has his laws. And that is the instrument, if you will, that he uses to, to govern us and to lead us and to the standard to which he holds us. This morning I want to look at um, verses 105 to 112 of Psalm 119. The first verse will be very familiar to you, uh, as I think will be some of the other concepts and ideas in these eight verses. So let me read it for us. As always, this is the very word of the living God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. So ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Let me pray for us this morning as we come before it. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, as always, we come before your word this morning now and ask your blessing that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would fulfill the promise that you make about your word, that it goes out and does not return to you empty. Instead, that it goes out and accomplishes everything that you have purposed for it and is successful in the things for which you have sent it. As we have read, so we pray that you would make your word a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us, and that you would uh, pour out your Spirit upon us this morning to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear the things that you have for us in your word. All of this, Father, we ask again in the precious, wonderful name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. When I was in 10th grade, I had a new experience. For the first time in my life, I switched from public school to private school and went to a Christian high school. Um, up until then, it had been all public schools. And at least then, I don't know if it's this way now, but at least then in, in the state of Washington, 7th, 8th, and 9th grade were junior high school, and high school didn't start until 10th grade. So as that transition was about to happen, 
my younger siblings had already started at this, uh, the lower grades at this school. And at 10th grade, I moved into this private Christian school. Never had, of course, this doesn't happen in public school, so I had never had to take a Bible class. There on my schedule is Bible, 10th grade Bible. Um, and that was actually one of the highlights for me throughout high school were the Bible classes and the Bible teachers. But here I am, a new student, new experience, and, and guess what we had? A new Bible teacher, <laughs> right out of Bible school, spitfire and all enthusiastic to teach us kids everything that he had learned in four years in like one semester. At least that's how it felt. <laughs> he really challenged us. Um, of course, being whimpering high school students, we didn't like it at the time. <laughs> One of the things he had us do, we had to memorize, those of you who are familiar with this, we had to memorize the whole evangelism explosion witnessing outline. The outline, all the examples, everything. And then even worse than that, we had to go up in pairs in front of the whole class and role play it. Ah, terrible. The other thing he had us do, the other big project I remember, our 10th grade year, was a project in Psalm 119. The longest psalm, the longest chapter in the whole Bible, 176 verses. And we had to take this psalm and we had to write down every time we found a word in this psalm that was a synonym for God's law. Every time we saw law, word, testimony, precept, statute, we had to write down every single occurrence of it. And this was, guys, this was a while ago. We didn't have computers. Typewriters were clunky. We did this by hand. <laughs> I kept it for a while just because it was such a monumental effort. Um, 176 verses, and there's only about five or six that don't have some synonym for God's law in it. That was one of our projects. It, was, it took hours, hours and hours and hours. Like I say, here's a guy fresh out of Bible school. I'm going to learn these kids something. <laughs> now, I don't know what I learned really in that uh, assignment, or I don't know what the purpose was necessarily but the one thing that stuck with me was, was this, and maybe that's as good a point as any. I never, ever forgot how much this psalm is about the law of God. This is a psalm about God's word. It's a psalm that celebrates, it really, truly celebrates the law of God. Now, what I've learned since then is that it's not just some sort of impersonal academic exercise on the part of, of the psalmist. It's not just some treatise on, on God's law. This is a very personal psalm. This is why it's, it's so fitting to be part of this divine soul music series. This ought to be the music of our hearts, the, the cry of our hearts, the things that are in this very, very long psalm. The psalmist, as, as you'll see if you read through it, repeatedly talks in the first person. I. I will do this. I have this attitude. I think this. I, I, I. And he doesn't just talk about God's law as a subject. I love the law. 
I study the law. He talks about God's law as your law. I study your law. I love your precepts. It's an I-you relationship. That old uh, Martin Buber, is it Buber? Um, Book, I and Thou. It's a relationship between the psalmist and God that's being expressed through the writer's deep love of the law of God. Because it is God's law. It's his covenant, God's law. There are also echoes in this psalm of Psalms 1 and 19, which is, I think, just a happenstance given our numbering systems, but Psalms 1 and 19, 119. Um, Remember, Psalm 1 is a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And one of the key characteristics of the righteous is the righteous is someone who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. If you want to know what that looks like, Read Psalm 119. This is what it means to meditate, or what it looks like, if you will, to meditate upon God's law. And then in Psalm 19, there's a celebration of God's law. We sang it this morning. The law of the Lord is perfect and sure. It's right and pure. It's clean and it's true. The law of the Lord makes simple people wise. It enlightens the eyes. It's more to be desired than gold, even fine gold, and it's sweeter than honey itself. It's a warning for the Lord's servant, and there's great reward for those who keep it. This is a psalm that celebrates those same kinds of ideas. In fact, if you were to read through the psalm, you'd see the the, uh, comparison to honey more than once, and the sweetness of the law uh, as being sweeter than honey. Again, I don't have time to cover all 176 verses this morning. So we're just going to look at one stanza from 105 to 112. Um, but what I want to do before that is, is give a little bit of an overview of the psalm itself um, and what we can learn from that, some ideas, and then go through verses 105 to 112 in a little bit more detail on what we can learn there. So a big picture of the whole psalm and then a more detailed picture from the stanza that we're looking at. Well, one question, <laughs> I, ha- I know I asked this question in 10th grade, why is this psalm so long? <laughs> why is it such a long chapter? Well, the, the main reason it's so long is because it's a very structured psalm. It has a very detailed structure, purposeful structure. There's 22 stanzas in the psalm. 22 verses, we would call them verses, but 22 stanzas, if you will, each with eight verses. Well, that's where you get your 176 verses. Most Bibles that are published today, your Bible probably has a little heading in front of verses 105 to 112, a nun in front of it, and maybe a little drawing of a Hebrew letter. Um, That's because each of the 22 stanzas is tied to each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And the first line of each, the first letter of each line of each stanza begins with the corresponding letter of the alphabet. So the first stanza, every line in the first stanza begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Second stanza, every line begins with the second letter of the 
Hebrew alphabet, and so on. So it's an acrostic psalm. Um, an acrostic is something we're familiar with today. We do it with names. Maybe you write the, the letters of your name down the side of a paper, and the first letter's M, and so you write, you know, uh, a characteristic of the person. Um, what's a good one for M? I can't even think of one. Um, Mary. And, and so you do an acrostic type of thing. You do it with holidays. People do it in their Christmas letters all the time. So 22 stanzas makes sense, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but the eight verses is a little bit of a puzzle, um, a little bit of a puzzle for people. Eight is not a, a biblical number like three or seven or 12 or, or 42 or 40. Um, and so this has been something that's puzzled people. And uh, in a recent doctoral dissertation, someone who studied the psalm came up with this uh, connection, and I think it's a connection that makes a lot of sense. There are several synonyms for law or word used in this psalm, testimony, rule, statute, precept, and so on. It turns out that there are eight of them that occur the most frequently, at least 19 times, 20, 25, close to 30 times uh, in the psalm. Eight of those synonyms occur the most frequently. The others, less than five times or so each. So these eight synonyms are kind of the key synonyms for the psalm. And so it kind of makes sense, eight synonyms, eight verses for each stanza, 22 times 8, 176 verses. Here we are. It's a very structured, long psalm. Um, now, you might think that one of, the <laughs> one of the logical things to do, one of the expected things to do, would that each of the verses would have one of those eight synonyms. It doesn't. They're random. They're kind of spread out randomly throughout the psalms. Some stanzas will have... The same synonym repeated two or three times. Uh, it may not occur at all for a few stanzas and so on. So in the one sense, it's a very structured psalm. It's following a pattern. That pattern has a connection to the words used and to the, the alphabet. But in other ways, there's no real discernible pattern. As I mentioned earlier, there's five or six verses that don't even have a synonym for God's law, for God's word in them. What about some of the typical questions we ask about a psalm? Who wrote it? When did they write it? Why did they write it? Well, we don't know who wrote it. There's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, But the truth is, we just don't know. Um, When was it written? Again, a lot of speculation. Was it early? Was it late? Uh, I'm not going to take you through all that, because the bottom line answer that everyone comes to, we don't know. But why was it written? Well certainly to celebrate God's law, because that's a key theme, if not the key theme in the psalm. Celebrating the relationship between the psalmist and God. I love your law. That covenant relationship especially that's embodied in the laws of that covenant. In that sense, the I and the you, the the covenant relationship, the covenant laws, In that sense, this is a psalm that then applies to all of us because we're all in a covenant relationship with God. 
But there's another way to think of this psalm, um, and that, it, that is that it's a psalm written especially for the king of Israel. Here's some reasons why to make that connection. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, we read about the requirement for the king to write out his own copy of the law of God and then to rule by it. In some ways, we could see Psalm 119 as a reminder of this uh, duty for the king. There's another interesting connection in, in the books of Kings. Um, David gives advice to Solomon before he dies in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And in that advice, he uses, I think it's six of the synonyms for God's law. Obey his precepts, do his word, you know, follow his law, that kind of thing. And then, after the dedication of the temple is completed, uh, when Solomon is king, God comes to him in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 4 to 7, and again gives instruction to Solomon and uses about six or so of the synonyms for the law that are in this psalm. So there's a connection there, it seems, between this psalm and the kings. Another small clue that's in this psalm is there's a repeated reference in Psalm 119 to um, the heart of the psalmist. I will obey you with all my heart. I will study you with all my heart. I will serve you with all my heart. And one of the great uh, expectations of the people of Israel in Deuteronomy one of the great criticisms of the people in Deuteronomy and throughout the books of the kings is that their heart was not with God. They did not serve God with all their heart. This king did not follow God with all his heart. Or that king did follow God with all his heart. So there's another little tie, if you will, to the king. It's a psalm for us, our personal relationship with our covenant Lord, but also a royal psalm, if you will, a psalm for the king to remind him of his duty before God and how to govern according to God's covenant laws. Two lessons I want to take from that broad look at things. And one is just the simple lesson of, of the absolute necessity, the, the, the singular importance of loving God's law and of following it. Um, if this was true for the people of the Old Covenant, it's even more true for us today. Just look at the New Testament reading again from Ephesians. We're to walk in the light. We're to be obedient to God and to serve one another. And look at the context of Philippians as it talks about leaving sin and the, the ways in which to follow God and to serve one another. The principles there are, are reflective of the laws that are summarized in the Ten Commandments. God's law is necessary. It's good and it's wonderful. It's to be obeyed. And it's to be obeyed, as the repeated phrasing is in the psalm, with all of our hearts. Not grudgingly, but with, with joy and with thanksgiving. Which is not how we typically react to law. Give me freedom. Don't pile laws on me. Don't pile regulations and statutes on me. Give me freedom. And so when we talk about God's law, we often think of it in the same way we think about um, governmental laws. A burden, a restriction, negative instead of positive. 
here we, it's helpful to remember that connection to Psalm 1. The righteous man delights in the law of the Lord, is willing to study it night and day. So a measure of our, our sanctification, if you will, a measure of our, our growth in, in holiness, in, in becoming more and more like Christ, is the strength of our love for God's law and our love and desire to walk in the light rather than walking in darkness. A measure of our growth as Christians is the strength of that love that we have for God's law and for obeying for obeying it completely, seeing it as a reflection of him and his character. That's one, I think, pretty general and, and maybe fairly obvious lesson from the psalm. The second lesson is, is, I think, from the way the psalm is structured. It's both a highly structured psalm, 22 stanzas, each following a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet, eight verses each, followed very rigidly, no exceptions, but at the same time within that rigid structure, an incredible variety. These words used here, these words used there, some not used at all, some used more here. Um, there's even variety in the lines, of uh, the verses of the psalm. Typically, Hebrew poetry has two lines, we call them couplets, two repeated ideas, but there's triplets in here and other ways of expressing things. So there's variety within the structure. A, a measure of flexibility, if you will. And how do we take that? Well, think of the king. Think of how this psalm is to remind the king of his duty to judge the people and to rule them according to God's law. Well, like our Old Testament reading, David as king is not only expected to rule justly, <coughs> He's also expected to show mercy. The king has the power, and he's expected to have the discretion and the wisdom to know when to show mercy, to know how to apply the law in a given situation. There has to be some measure of flexibility based on the principles in the law. For example, Solomon. Two women come before him, both claiming the same baby, which law in the Old Testament does he appeal to to make the right decision? It's, it's not obvious. I'd, I'd challenge you to find one. A measure of, of Solomon's wisdom is how he handled that situation um, with remarkable, I think, mercy and, and wisdom and flexibility. And, and to know when mercy is needed versus when justice is required is a matter of great wisdom, which is a reflection ultimately of God himself. God ultimately is beyond our ability to precisely put into a neat little structure. God doesn't fit into 22 stanzas of eight verses each. We can see outlines of who God is. We can describe his attributes and his character, and we see him as clearly as he has revealed himself to be seen. But there's stuff that we don't know, stuff that we don't comprehend, what we do know is that he is a God both of justice and of mercy. There is a rigidity to his law, but there is mercy 
that is available as well. In fact, he tells us, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. And if that's who God is, his law has to be a reflection of the same. And I think there's maybe, um, maybe an intentionality to the, the, the rigidity of the structure of the psalm, but also the flexibility of expression within it. And then that's true for us as well. Do we execute strict justice and strict justice only? Some people in the church look that way. Do we, are we people that uh, express ourselves only through a mushy kind of free-wheeling mercy? Some churches look that way. Neither one, I think, is a reflection of God's law or God himself. Can we be a wise mixture of both? Well, I think we can, and I think we have to be. So there's some general ideas from the psalm itself. Let's look at the, the stanza itself, none, 105 to 112. The letter none in Hebrew, as you might guess, is equivalent to our letter N. So every verse in Hebrew in this stanza begins with that Hebrew letter N. Um, the theme of this verse, like many of the stanzas in Psalm 119, is in the very first verse of the stanza, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Think about what that means for a moment. Uh, break it down a little bit. Word here, again, a synonym for God's law. What are we talking about when we're talking about God's law in, in this psalm and in particular in here? Is it, is it only the law of the Torah, only the law of Moses? Um, and most commentators would say yes, but not only that. Um, it includes all of God's word for us and to us. Um, those are also part of his commandments and his requirements, his instruction for us. Um, can't leave out the Mosaic Law, but we also can't leave out the rest of God's revelation to us. The king himself would have had revelation through the prophets, or David himself, who was a prophet. Um, So it's, it's the broader view, I think, of, of, of all of God's word, his entire word that's in mind here. And that word is a lamp and a light. A question there, is that two ways of saying the same thing? Or is the psalmist saying something slightly different? For me, I would say it's similar but, but different. Think of a lamp this way. You take a lamp with you for what reason? It's dark. <laughs> I need to see. Um, a lamp shines light in a dark place. Think of a flashlight today. We don't carry lamps anymore. It shines the way in the midst of darkness. It helps navigate our way through uh, dark places so we don't stub our toe on a, on a table or a chair or something like that. So think of, the, think of God's Word this way. God's Word is like a lamp that when we're in a dark place, it shines light and helps us navigate our way through that dark place. And light is, well, light is light. Um, when it's light out, you don't need a lamp. You don't need a flashlight. Um, who uses a flashlight in the daytime? It doesn't make sense. So God's word is both a lamp that shines in dark places, but it is also the light that reveals everything and um, allows us to walk uh, and live uh, as a way of life in the light. So a path to follow, 
but also walking in the light of day versus navigating our way through darkness. Now, I, I refer to this verse in my, in my prayer at the beginning of every sermon, not because I'm trying to follow some rote pattern or be mechanical or because I think it's magical in some way, um, but because that really is my hope for us, for each of us, myself included, each and every week. Because I'm wasting my time up here, and you're wasting your time out there. If there isn't this hope, this prayer, this expectation that God's word goes out and lights up the dark places in our lives and becomes a light to govern how we live our lives. Um, And the word should be that for us question we can ask ourselves, a question we can pursue regularly in our daily lives. Is this activity that I'm doing, is this decision that I'm making, is this conversation that I'm having being guided by and governed by the light of God's word? Is it consistent with and subject to the laws of God as found in his word? That's not easy. Um, But that's my prayer that as we come before his word every week that that would begin to happen in in each of our lives that as we regularly come before God's word and submit ourselves to it that we'd be begin to get better at applying uh, God's word to our own lives so that we can walk in light as Paul wrote to the Ephesians rather than in darkness Like one of the writers I read, I kind of agree that the other verses kind of apply, verse 105. So let's go through those real quickly here. 106, the psalmist makes an oath, an oath, an echo of of covenant making. He's sworn to keep God's righteous rules. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. This is the solemn commitment that the psalmist is making to walk in the light of to depend upon the direction and the guidance uh, from God's word, from God's law, uh, in dark places and and in every place. And so for us, do we have that delight in God's word that we are willing to make the same kind of commitment, to vow the same kind of vow, to pledge the same kind of oath, to keep God's righteous rules. And to make that not in a general sense, but to make it to him, God, I will keep your righteous rules. That's the commitment the psalmist is making. If 106 is a commitment, then 107 is a prayer that when those dark times come, when affliction arises, when I am severely afflicted, as the psalmist puts it, that the Lord will give life according to his word. This is where the psalmist is asking that the word would be that lamp in a dark place, that affliction that comes, that test for us. And when those things come, it's often a test for us. How will we respond? Will we give in to it? Paul writes to the Ephesians, don't let others drag you back into walking in the dark. Don't give in. Are we going to do that when those times arise for us? to give in to sin and temptation, to go with the crowd, to give in to society's, look, new and ever-changing rules, right? 
no matter how much they contradict God's law. The world around us is never going to, by itself, change its rules to become more and more like God's rules. It always goes in the other direction. So if we compromise here and deviate from God's word this much, society's keep it's going in that direction. Where do we go next? And where do we go next? And pretty soon, where are we in our commitment to keep his righteous rules? So there's a prayer here. Don't let me do that, Lord. Give me life according to your word. Save me from that affliction. Verse 108 has overtones of worship to it. Accept my freewill offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me <coughs> your rules. <coughs> freewill offerings are those offerings above and beyond the minimum required by the law. Teaching is something that occurs and is received during worship. So again, how do we think about this for ourselves? Do we come, do we come to worship ready and willing to offer God more than the minimum. <clears throat> and I don't think that means at all only money, or maybe even primarily money. Are we willing to give Him more than just a little bit of attention? Are we willing to really pay attention during worship? Are we going to come to worship with energy? Am I really going to sing, or am I just going to kind of mumble through the words? with a real desire to be taught, and therefore pay close attention to the word, not just the preaching, but as it's read. The word is peppered throughout the worship service. Are we paying attention to it as it is sung and as it's read to us? Is that our attitude? Is that our prayer as we come to worship? Teach me your rules. Verse 109 has an interesting expression. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. This uh, expression, I hold my life in my hand, is, is similar to what we say in English. I'm taking things into my own hands. I'm taking my life into my own hands. I've got to take care of <clears throat> myself. Um, danger is lurking. I can't depend on others to protect me. Therefore, I have to do it myself because I'm the only one left to do it. But, the psalmist says, not without forgetting your law. Not for, without forgetting that I depend upon you. Not without forgetting that I have to do what you have called me to do. If it's down to just me alone, with danger all around, I'm really never alone because I look to and remember God's law. I might be the only one protecting myself. I might have my life in my own hands. But if I do it according to God's principles and his word, then he will be with me. It reminds me of Daniel, willing to stand alone on God's word. It's that song we sang when we were kids. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. There's profound wisdom there, right? I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. I stand alone on the word of God. Verse 110, if if 107 refers to affliction and 109 to danger, now 110 has in mind specific people, enemies. It's another kind of a dark place, another kind of a dark situation where we need the lamp of God's word. And here in verse 110, these wicked enemies have come to lay a snare. 
Nevertheless, I do not stray from your precepts, says the psalmist. What's going on here? And I, I think the idea is, is, here are enemies laying a trap, not in secret, not off to the side. It's, it's not those movies that we watch or cartoons where they dig a hole and cover it with leaves and you don't know the trap is there. The trap is, you can see it. It's right there in front of you. They have laid a trap. I do not stray from your precepts. And so where are they laying the trap? They're laying it right in the path that I have to follow, to follow God. Have we ever seen that before? Have you ever experienced that before? We went through the book of Daniel not so long ago. What did his enemies do to him? They laid a trap for him right in the path of following God. He prays to his God every day out in the open. Let's pass a law, O king, that for a month everybody should pray only to you. There's a trap right in front of Daniel, right in the path of his following God. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Daniel prayed. Daniel faced the consequences. God miraculously rescued him. Are we willing to do that same kind of thing when the trap is laid for us right out there in the open to still follow, not stray from the precepts of God's law to worship God and to worship him alone? Think about the traps that are being laid for believers today. Society is passing laws. You must acknowledge this. You must serve this customer. You must speak this way about certain kinds of people. It's laid out a trap for us right out there in the open. What are we going to do? Go around it because that's the solution they offer? Or are we going to walk right through it following God's precepts? Can we make that same commitment as the psalmist and as Daniel? I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 111 brings us back to celebration. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. We love heritage. We love to celebrate our national heritage, our ethnic heritage, our family heritage. We have food, we have celebrations, we have holidays, we have customs and words and language that we pass on to one another. And as fun as those are, whatever it might be in your family or your tradition, Scripture calls upon us, and I think this verse is an example of that call to value and to find more joy in our heritage in God than our own heritage. Is God's word, is God's law, are his testimonies, his precepts, do you consider them your inheritance? your heritage, something to cherish and celebrate and pass on to those who come after us, our children and our children's children. Do you celebrate that biblical heritage more than your own personal heritage? Do you realize that when you read the Old Testament stories, whether it's Daniel or David or Joseph or anybody, that those are your stories? That's your family. That's your heritage, your inheritance. God and his testimonies are your inheritance. 
and do they bring joy to your heart as much as a Cinco de Mayo or a St. Patrick's Day? Or for me, Swedish cookies. And the stanza ends with a strong commitment. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end, eternally. No wavering, no hesitation, no stopping, no getting distracted. Forever to the end, I will perform your statutes. Not keep. He doesn't say keep here. He says perform, do, active. Inclining my very heart, the very essence of my being, to live my life, to perform according to the law of God, his very word. This is again what Paul talks about in Ephesians when he talks about walking in the light versus walking in darkness. The the solemn commitment of the psalmist here and the solemn commitment that we're being called upon to make as well is it's an unwavering commitment, not just to say that God's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path, but to live like it. In affliction, in danger, among enemies, in every circumstance of life, the questions set before us by these verses of this psalm, will you live to the end of your days with the word of God as your lamp and as your light? His law before you, with God as your sovereign king. That's the commitment of this psalmist. May it be our commitment as well, today and forever, to the end. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we do thank you for your word, and we do ask, we do ask this morning, that you would make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that you would, again, pull us out of the darkness and into the light of your word and of your Son. And may we ourselves be light to those around us, revealing darkness for what it is and bringing the, the glory and the wonder and the joy and the truth of your light to those around us. It's a hard task because the world, <laughs> the world loves its darkness. But we ask that you would use us, each to our ability, each in our own opportunity, each according to the gifts and skills that you have given, given to each of us, but nevertheless to be salt and light, each in our own way. Father, we ask it in the wonderful and precious name of the Lord of light, our Savior Christ himself. Amen.